we'll set you up a little bit. Good, good. You like it? You're good? We're good? So I was reflecting this week on all the reasons why women shouldn't preach. And I finally figured out the, the real reason. It's because I can't tell you how hot my wife is. <laughs> and we all know that that's necessary for a good sermon. Nonetheless, Steve is still making me preach, so hot wife or not, I guess we should get started. My husband, who happens to be mildly attractive... Uh, requested that I use the following story as my opening illustration. So, There's a city in the Netherlands that has a very, very large problem with litter. And no matter what they did, they could not get the littering under control. They tried several different methods. They tried upping the fine for litter. They tried having more litter agents so that they can you know, catch more people who are littering. Um, and they even like threw around the idea of paying people who picked up litter, but none of these things worked. Finally, somebody had a bright idea. They decided that they were going to make a trash can that would tell you a joke if you threw something away. And lo and behold, it worked. There's no more litter on the ground. People were throwing their trash away. Um, but they did this all for the wrong reason, obviously. They weren't caring about clean streets or whatever. They just, you know, wanted to hear a joke. Um, so that's just one of many different examples I could give you of people who have done things, the right things, for the wrong reasons. Uh, so today we're going to be looking at Mark 7, where we will see how the Pharisees do what they believe to be the right thing, but they do it for the wrong reason. So Evan, if you could go ahead and read Mark 7, 1 through 5. Whenever you find it. Okay. <clears throat> the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? So basically, the Pharisees appear and ask, why haven't you been washing your hands before you eat? Don't you know that's gross? Well, actually, it's not quite that simple. Uh, what they're really doing is challenging Jesus. But instead of challenging his practices directly, they challenge his disciples' practices, which are probably also his practices, because, you know, usually the disciple does what the teacher does. But, um, and as we already know from Steve's most recent sermon series through Luke, the Pharisees were constantly trying to trap Jesus and prove that he was uh, breaking the Mosaic Law. In addition to strictly upholding the law, the Pharisees also created and upheld a series of oral traditions. These are commonly referred to as the hedge around the law, or in this particular passage, it's referred to as the traditions. Now, the whole idea of creating the hedge around the law 
stemmed from the fact that the Jews had not really been in contact with God for about 400 years. This is the intertestamental period. Uh, During that 400-year period, people began to worry. Had they totally driven God away? Was he still planning on sending his promised Messiah? Had they really screwed up so bad that God no longer cared for his people? Well, the Pharisees were not willing to sit around and wait for the answer to these questions. They decided to take matters into their own hands. They thought that maybe if they were pious enough, and if they made the rest of Israel pious just like them, then maybe, just maybe, God would finally speak to them again. And hopefully he would send his Messiah, and soon. So this hedge basically took the Old Testament laws and made them even more strict. For instance, they took the command in Deuteronomy 14.21, which states, You shall not boil a goat in its mother's milk, a step further so that the Jews no longer were able to eat cheeseburgers. Because there is a very minute possibility that the cow that produced the milk for the cheese was also the mother of the cow that was used to make the hamburger. And if that crazy coincidence happened, then the Jews would be breaking the law. So no cheeseburgers for them. So this is obviously a modern example, but the same sort of ideas went into how the Pharisees made up their hedge. So this hedge was created as a sort of buffer zone. If you never break the traditions, then you should ideally never break the Old Testament law. So the idea was pretty solid. It was definitely initially created with good intentions, but that didn't last for long. More on that later. Jesus and his disciples didn't generally follow the traditions of the Pharisees. It was not part of the law, and God hadn't spoken it, so it wasn't really necessary. But the Pharisees were obviously not happy with this. In verse 5, we see the Pharisees attack Jesus through his disciples, which may seem odd at first glance, but when you think about it, you realize that they just didn't want to start a riot. See, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he was very popular. He had a lot of people following him and a lot of people supporting him. And if the Pharisees were to, to attack Jesus directly, then they might start an uprising. And obviously, the Pharisees didn't want that. Uh, So, the real question at hand here is why the disciples were not washing their hands before they ate. (laughs) Although ritual purity was very important within the Jewish culture and laws, there's actually no law that requires a common man to wash his hands before he eats. There is a law, though, that requires the priest and their family to wash before they eat the sacrificial meal. So the Pharisees saw that law, and then they decided, well, we should apply that to the whole of Israel. And, you know, not just for the sacrificial meal, we should just make it all food, especially bread. So that's what they did. Uh, And the Pharisees were so observant of this particular law that they that they would wash everything before they ate. Verse 4 states that they would wash not only their hands, but also their cups and their pitchers and their kettles. And in some translation, it even says that they wash their dining couches. So, you know, talk about clean freaks. So the fact that Jesus, who 
claimed to be their Messiah, was not teaching his disciples to do these things is really appalling to them. And the fact that he has gained such a following and the people who are following him are not being taught to follow these traditions really scares the Pharisees. They were so upset that they traveled from Jerusalem to wherever it was that Jesus was teaching at this point, which was likely 120 miles away in Capernaum. They think that Jesus and his teachings are making God even more angry at Israel. They think that that he is jeopardizing their opportunity to be given the promised Messiah. But the irony, obviously, is that they were trying so hard to usher in this Messiah that they're unable to recognize him standing right in front of him, right in front of them. Now, Evan, could you please go ahead and read verses 6 through 13 for me? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. So obviously Jesus is upset with the Pharisees here. They've been keeping man-made traditions, but their traditions are impeding upon their ability to uphold the law, which, by the way, they tell everyone that they're upholding. Um, So here, Jesus invokes the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Now, contrary to what your Sunday school teachers probably told you, that that command isn't really aimed at heathen children. It's uh, more aimed at adult children. The adults are supposed to take care of their parents. This means, at least in part, that the children were to financially support their parents in their old age. This would then work so that when said children became old, then their children would take care of them, and so on and so on. It was uh, like a built-in retirement plan, so to speak. Uh, So, now one of the Pharisees' traditions was called Corban. I want to emphasize here that this was a tradition, not something that was commanded by God. Actually, it was in direct opposition to what was commanded by God. There are many nuanced views of exactly what Corban was. The only real thing that we are absolutely sure about is that it meant that something was given as a gift devoted to God, as the verse says. So lately, I've been doing a lot of studying of the um, early church fathers, Not by choice, but (laughs) nonetheless, it's helpful here. Uh, Origen, who who is called by many the first biblical exegete, wrote excessively about his theology interpretations in the third century. So he's giving an explanation less than 200 years after this text was written. And he explains the practice of Corbin. It was... Common among moneylenders, he says. When they would have a particularly difficult time, 
getting one of their debtors to pay them back their debt, they would go and tell their debtors that they had given their debt to the poor in the name of God. That is, the debt was now Corbin. Now, the debtors would then no longer be in debt to the money lenders, but to God. So now they felt like, like they were required to actually pay it back because religious piety and whatnot. So similarly, when parents would come asking for financial support from their children, which the children were obligated to give to them because of the fifth commandment, the children would, that, would just claim that their support was given to God as Corbin, so they would no longer have to provide support to their parents. And this practice was fully supported by the Pharisees' traditions. Now, you may wonder, why would the children do this to their parents? If they had to give support up regardless, why would they not just give it to their parents? There, this is where the tradition of Corbin gets a little bit tricky. Not everyone agrees on it. Some say that they would do this out of their own sense of personal piety. They think giving the money to God is better than giving it to their parents, and God will look on them more favorably. Others say that once something was consecrated to God, there was nothing else that needed to be done. They didn't actually have to give the money to the temple. They could keep it themselves. They just said it was consecrated to God. So that's kind of self-explanatory why someone would do that. Um, and still others would say that children would often use Corbin as an oath that legally bound them, to, bound them to no longer help their parents. So someone might do this if they didn't get along well with their parents, or sometimes it would happen uh, just in a minor dispute between them, and the child got upset and, you know, made the Corbin oath. Regardless of the reason behind it, the child declaring Corbin would no longer be obligated to give to their parents. And since Corbin is an oath, and oaths are legally binding to the point where the Pharisees would even question your salvation if you were ever to break an oath, they were legally bound to never give anything to their parents any longer. Uh, So even if they made the oath rashly in in a small dispute between them and their parents, they were no longer able to give anything to their parents, no matter how much they regretted it. Some may be confused by Jesus' second reference. Anyone who curses his father or mother is to be put to death. It doesn't appear here as if anyone is cursing their parents, but some commentators would argue that by the first century, the term Corbin had lost its real meaning of being something dedicated to God. And it was used more of a curse word. And when aimed at your parents, then you would be breaking that law. But the important thing is that the Pharisees are the ones condoning this behavior. It was a way that people were able to avoid the responsibility to their parents. And even worse is the fact that by allowing this practice to exist, they were advocating for the breaking of the law. Now, why would they do this, you might ask? The reason is that they ran the temple, and, well, by running the temple, they got a cut of the donations given to the temple. And if people were giving their money to the temple instead of giving it to their parents, then, well, the Pharisees were making some easy money. So at this point, we begin to wonder, do they really care about serving God, or are they looking out for their own interests? Jesus makes this clear by reciting Isaiah's prophecy. 
They honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far away from him. Their hearts have been hardened. In biblical times, the heart was believed to function in the same way that we believe the mind functions. It was the center of your will and your decision-making. So if the heart was not with God, then their will was not to please him, and they had made the decision to do things that kept them far from God. So Evan, can you go ahead and read verses 14 through 23? Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. Far from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. So just to be clear, Jesus is talking about pooping here. In the Greek, it literally says that the food goes into your body and through your stomach and then into the toilet. So um, I'm going to actively refrain from making any poop jokes, but I'm going to give you all a moment to just think of your own and laugh under your breath. And then we can continue, so, you know. All right, so let's get to the heart of the issue here. Well, actually, first, I want to interject an interesting little tidbit. Um, As clearly as said in verse 19, Jesus declares all foods clean. But this is not at all the main point here. Um, Actually, this is just an editorial comment made by Mark or a later scribe. Um, after the whole Peter and the sheet thing. So it's really important, though, because at this point, the dull apostles were definitely not making that connection, like, obviously. Um, But Mark later puts it into the text as a means to introduce the Gentile mission, which begins in the following verses with uh, the Syrophoenician woman. Okay, so now on to the important stuff. Jesus is talking about the difference between what goes into your body and what goes out of your body. The Jewish laws are very highly concerned with what goes into and onto a person's body. They strictly strictly regulate food consumption, sexual relations, and purity, such as the abstention from touching blood and corpses, just for a few examples. But Jesus is refuting this concern. He does not care what goes into or onto a person's body, as it does not at all affect the heart. It's what comes out of the body that he cares about. And just to clarify, we are no longer talking about poop. These things would include our words and inclinations. These are the types of things that our hearts and minds really are, that show what our minds, hearts and minds really are. Really, what it boils down to is, are we filling the greatest command? 
Are we loving God and are we loving others? Because everything else that is holy and righteous will follow if we are fulfilling these commands. And if we are not fulfilling these commands, then what will follow is a list of vices that Jesus provides. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Now, I'm not going to get into these because most are self-explanatory and it's not the point of this message. The real focus is intentionality. Jesus condemns the Pharisees not for upholding the law, even though he has replaced it with something much better, but rather he condemns them for their hypocrisy. They follow the law, they can follow the law all that, that they want, as far as Jesus is concerned, but they need to be doing it to glorify God. They aren't doing it for that reason at all. They're doing what they think is right, following the law, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons, because they want other people to see their piety. They want to impress others, and maybe they even want to impress God, but they don't do it for his glory. They do it for their own. This text makes a a clear distinction between true and false piety. You can do all of the right things, but if it's not for the right reason, then it's all for naught. On the other hand, even if you make mistakes now and again, if you were trying to do the right thing for the right reason, then it's for the glory of God. And we cannot truly worship God if we do not do with that with integrity and purity of heart. Worshiping God isn't just singing songs. It's singing songs to glorify God. It isn't just attending church. It's attending church in order to further the kingdom of God. It isn't just helping others. It's helping others to show love for God. It's not enough to be legalistic. We must truly desire to worship God with all that we do. A pure heart is one that never desires to do evil. This doesn't mean that a person with a pure heart doesn't sin. Rather, it's that the sin was not an intentional evil. No matter how many good things we do in our lives, we will never deserve the gift that God gave us. We need to come to God with humility because pride breeds a desire to earn the gift through works. It's easy to look at the Pharisees and condemn them, thinking that they were just horrible people. But we really think that if, but would we really think that if Jesus and the New Testament authors didn't point that out to us? We still think in terms of purity today, although we might not use that word. We look at people and things and think that they're gross or they're wrong. We may think that they are things to be avoided and that surely God would not approve of it. Many Christians will look at people who drink or smoke or have tattoos or have homosexual tendencies and say that they are not welcome because they are not what it is to be pure. This is not our call, though. We are not to be the hypocritical Pharisees of the 21st century. We need to look at our traditions and see if they're hindering the kingdom of God. Are stubborn legalistic mindsets causing others or even ourselves to fall away from God? It is not just the simple judgmental things that I mentioned earlier. It's also the more nitty-gritty things. If there's anything that you should take from the Korban Oath, it's that our worship of God should not violate our responsibility to others, and our responsibility to others should not violate our worship of God. 
This could mean so many things to us. It could mean that if you're overextending yourself by tithing too much and it's causing your family to have troubles financially, then maybe you shouldn't be tithing that much. Or if you're volunteering or studying every waking minute and you are... um, and you're not making those lasting relationships that will further the kingdom of God, then maybe you should cut back on your studying or volunteering. Or maybe it's something a little closer to home. Maybe, like me, it kills you to to know that Steve intends to cut back on his technicality of his sermons in order to become a little more seeker or visitor-friendly. I love the in-depthness of his sermons, but maybe that's not the best for our community. Whatever it might be, Just remember that we have the responsibility not only to God, but also to others for God.